78 if you're looking at the Bible in front of you. Now, as you're turning there, I'm going to read another passage from the Bible, one that's always struck me for a long time. It's from Genesis chapter 46. It goes like this. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. That scene from Genesis 46 moves me every time I read it. You may remember what's hap- what happened up to that point in the story of Joseph, how his brothers conspired against him, their dad's favorite son, and sold him to foreign slave traders. Joseph wound up in Egypt, and his time there was like a roller coaster. He went from slave to house manager, to, from house manager to prison, from prison really to prime minister. But now in over 20 years since he's been home, the last sight that Joseph's father, Jacob, or Israel, saw of him was a blood-soaked robe that he had given his favorite son. Over 20 years. And now that story makes this moment in Genesis 46, when they're finally reunited, just weigh on us, be so vivid and moving. I love that line. Joseph fell and wept on his father's neck a good while. I like to think that might be what happens in heaven. I don't know. There are other scenes in the Bible that are like this, whether it's the prodigal son or Peter and the resurrected Jesus. These scenes move us. They compel us. Because sin brings division and division hurts. It's been that way ever since the Garden of Eden, the very first sin. We are victims of this division and we are culprits of this division also. But that's why these scenes of reunion and reconciliation are so precious. They restore what we know should be in place. They restore what we in our right minds long for all the time. I think that's why David wrote in Psalm 133, how good and sweet it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's what should be in place, but it's what's so often not in place. You see, the ugliness of division is all around us. The pain of division is everywhere, which makes the rare gem of unity all the more beautiful when we see it. Our passage this morning from Ephesians calls, out, calls us to live out the unity God has accomplished in the church through Jesus. That peace with God and peace with one another. God calls us to live that out. I love the common image of the church, that the church is like the model home of the neighborhood God is setting up on earth. That in a world that's very dark and divided, the church gets to be the place that shines the bright light of Christ-centered unity. So the main takeaway or main point of our passage from Ephesians this morning, if God brought us together, then let's do what it takes to stay together. It's the main point Paul wants to get across to the Ephesians, to the Jewish and Gentile Christians who are now in the same church. If God brought us together, let's work to stay together. 
There's much to unpack there. And we're going to have two headings for our time. The way to unity and the basis of unity. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. First heading, the way to unity. The headings we have, the way to unity and the basis of unity, they summarize the passage as a whole, but when we're looking at the first section, verses 1 to 3, I think it's helpful just to give a flyover uh, from the start, and then we'll go descend lower and get into the particulars. So just a flyover overview. Verses 1 to 3, Paul calls the Ephesians to action. You see, the main command is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. They will do that through humility, gentleness, patience, and love. And the goal of that walk, the destination, is to maintain unity. So that's the very 30,000-foot overview. Now, we want to know how we reach this destination. What is the way to unity, at least to maintaining it? How do we get there? Well, first, it begins with the gospel. More specifically, the way to unity begins with the truth of the gospel. You know, this crucial insight comes from just one word in verse 1. It's a surprising one. That word, therefore. You've probably heard it before. Whenever you see the word, therefore, you should ask, what is it there for? (laughs) Therefore points backwards here, not just to what immediately precedes it, but also to what all that's come before this point in the letter of Ephesians. In, In very many of his letters, Paul shifts from the truth of the gospel to the application of the gospel. This is that shift here in chapter 4. So in chapters 1 to 3, Paul talks about the new people God has created. God is the one who called us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. He did this through the work, Christ's work on the cross and the Spirit's work to make us alive. And Paul has explained that this new people God has made through his Son and by the Spirit, this new people also includes Gentiles, surprisingly enough. So in other words, chapters 1 to 3, all that's come before this point, Paul told them, this is what God has done for you. He told them, this is who you were, and this is what God has done. Now, if chapters 1 to 3 are about the new people God has made through the gospel, then chapters 4 to 6 are about the new standards God has for his new people. Chapters 1 to 3, this is what God has done for you. Chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians, this is how you should now live. We need both of this. The truth leads to life. The doctrine leads to practice. Some of us are imbalanced. Some of us are really heady. We like the doctrine. We like the content. We say, I can sit and hear a sermon and under a Bible study all day. Don't ask me to share about my feelings. 
Some of us like the practice. You know, we've heard all the basic stuff. I've been in church since I was a kid. I know this story. Just give me something to do. Mm -mm. Truth leads to life. Be balanced, friends. Are you imbalanced? Now, when we say that the way to unity begins with the gospel, it means that when it comes to unity, we can't start with chapter 4 of Ephesians. We have to start with chapters 1 to 3. In other words, we cannot have unity without truth, as we will see later on. And I think that where we start is a broader lesson for the Christian life. We do not begin with our best attempts to be good people. We might take that for granted, but we need to be clear about this. Our starting point is not our best attempts to be good people. No, even as chapter 4 talks about here, our starting point is being called by God. Is God calling us out of death and into life, out of darkness into light? If that isn't in place, we can't be good people. It has to start with God. Friend, where, where is your starting point? Where has your starting point been? Are you here this morning and maybe you're not sure where you stand with God? Maybe you're not very clear about who Jesus is, or maybe you are clear and you would say you're not a Christian. I wonder if you have gotten your starting point backwards. Have you started with yourself and your own good works instead of starting with Christ? If that is the case, friend, then the path you are on is like a cul-de-sac to nowhere when it comes to meaning, when it comes to your standing with God. Instead, we say, come to the end of yourself and start with what God has done for sinners like you and me through Christ Jesus' son. How Jesus lived the life we did not live, but died the death that we deserved in our place. Christian, we get this backwards too. Don't think we're left off the hook. We start with ourselves instead of starting with the gospel. I wonder, do you work tirelessly to prove your own value and your own work? Then consider that we may have forgotten to begin with the gospel. Remember that you are already loved, cared for, valued, called out of death, adopted, and forgiven. This is our starting point. Have we become indifferent and passive in our walk with Christ? then we have forgotten to begin with the gospel. We are too familiar with this preciousness, too casual about its importance. Friends, the way to unity starts with remembering the gospel. If we begin with the gospel, bask in God's glorious grace in it, treasure it, feel its weight, then we are going to be on the same page as Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. The same page and understand the importance of living in response to the gospel. We can't have received so much grace and live the same way we've always lived. We cannot have been called out of death and into life and still live like we're dead. This is why Paul urged them. You see that word is very strong. He urged them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And notice this message did not come from an armchair Christian. It came from one who was so convinced of the gospel's truth 
that he was willing to be imprisoned for it. We were dead, but God made us alive together in Christ. Paul says, let's live. We were far off from God, but now God is reconciled to hit us to him and us to each other. So let's live that out. Let's live like it's true. So the way to unity begins with the gospel, but the way to unity also continues with the gospel. More specifically, it continues with the practice of the gospel. Like we said, we don't leave the gospel behind. We now live it out. It shapes our entire lives. Unity will come when redeemed sinners fueled by the Spirit live out the qualities that belong to and are produced by the gospel. Paul unfolds these qualities in verses 2 to 3. You can look down there and notice them. So the way to unity is the gospel way of humility, gentleness, patience, and love. We could take these one at a time, just reflect on them a little bit. And other passages are going to help us show what they mean. Humility, the gospel way of humility. Jesus said that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand themselves rightly. That we are needy, helpless, and guilty. I like C.J. Mahaney's definition of humility and pride. Very simple. He says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Pride is when human being, sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. So humility will lead you not only to the truth about yourself, but also humility will lead you to treat others differently. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, tells us to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another. Toward one another. Humility should have a relational dynamic. It should lead us to serve other people in love. A right assessment of ourselves and an other's focus. This is humility. And this might be news to you, is not natural to us. The world does not celebrate humility. We are bent in on ourselves, focused on ourselves, even in seemingly innocent ways. You know, especially in the West, it's the purported cure of low self-esteem. You know, it's not actually humility. It's pride, if you think about it. Uh, An example I often grab is from the movie Polar Express, Christmas movie. Uh, maybe you've seen it. Maybe you've heard the song from it by Josh Groban, who's got a great voice. I mean, I, and this song gets stuck in my head every year. It's called Believe. Hear the lyrics from Believe. It says, believe in what your heart is saying. Hear the melody that's playing. There's no time to waste. There's so much to celebrate. Believe in what you feel inside and give your dreams the wings to fly. You have everything you need if you just believe. Not only is that really squishy and vague, if you think about it, it's actually very prideful. You have everything you need. Like the cure to low self-esteem is even pride. Can't escape it. And friends, think about how this would work with church unity. If everybody in the church is prideful, not humble, unity will be impossible. 
if that's the case, if everybody in the church is prideful, then everybody will assert their own preferences, vie for their own interest and power. If everybody in the church is prideful, then we'll always elevate ourselves above others. Then we'll always say, that person's sin is worse than mine. Instead, we walk the gospel way of humility. Friends, consider that we are benefactors of Christ's humility. He who was rich, but who for our sakes became poor. Peter said to clothe ourselves in humility. You know what the scene he likely thought of when he wrote that? When Jesus clothed himself with a towel to wash his disciples' feet. The way to unity is the gospel way of humility. And it's the gospel way of gentleness, that second quality in verses 2 to 3. You know, when I think of gentleness, I think of how Kate and I try to calm down our puppy, Annie. When Annie sits next to us at the couch, uh, she is allowed on the couch. That was a decision that we cannot walk back from. Um, she starts and she, and she gets to become unruly and fussy and she starts to bite us a little bit. If, if we're not frustrated, we can say gentle. See, Annie is a strong dog, but we want to see her control that strength and show gentleness. Gentleness is strength under control. It's strength used in mercy and in love. This does not come natural, at least to most of us. And at the very least, the world does not celebrate gentleness. Our culture, whether it's our news, whether it's our social media, does not want us to be level-headed and gentle. They want us to be angry, outraged at everything, every day. What were we supposed to be mad about this week? Dr. Seuss or something like that? (laughs) Compare this to the gospel way of gentleness. What Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. Correct your opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. What if Christians were known for that? Would we not be salt and light, especially in this world? If we are not gentle, we will devour one another over the smallest offenses. Instead, we walk the way of the gospel. And friends, we are benefactors of Jesus' gentleness to us. This is his very heart. Matthew 11. I am gentle and lowly in heart. The, the gospel way to unity, these same qualities, walking through verses 2 to 3. How do we get to this destination? It started with the gospel. It continues with the gospel. We're in humility. We're in gentleness. And third is patience. Here's Paul's testimony. Again, he's writing to Timothy. This is from 1 Timothy 1.16. Paul said, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Patience. And this might come as news to you, um, but unfortunately, people in the church will annoy you and aggravate you. 
Will you be patient? Consider our own situation. Especially old oak folks, we, we've been through a lot of change. Will you be patient? This is, again, not the way that the world celebrates. We do not live in a patient world. And I, at home, um, I, always, I, I always, this is a very first world problem, I always accidentally hook up to, the diff- to a different Wi-Fi than the good one. And so my internet's about three times slower than it should be. And I get impatient. I get aggravated. You know, our world, our, we are just not trained to be steady over the long haul. Steady with situations and with people. We are not trained to be patient. But the question to us has to be, will we show the same patience that Christ showed us? Christ showed Paul, as he talks about. This gospel way to unity, humility, gentleness, patience, and it's to bear with one another in love. Notice that in verses 2 and 3. This is a proactive patience. It's an old word called forbearance. Forbearance is a disposition that covers big sins and small ones. It doesn't mean that we're pushovers. It doesn't mean that we're never honest with people. But if every little offense set us off, then we will have constant tension. I tried to do better, but if Kate got mad at me every time I leave razor clippings in the sink, we would be in constant arguments. I am thankful that she has forbearance. As God is slow to anger and quick to forgive, so we should be slow to anger and quick to forgive. Instead of, so for example, let's flesh this out. Instead of instantly retaliating against someone who is irritable and maybe a little difficult, bear with them in love. Try to understand them. Assume the best about them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. That's really hard to do. You know, maybe that person who's difficult, irritable, maybe, you know, they've had a hard day. Maybe there's something in their past that got brought up and that still shapes them and affects them. Maybe they aren't feeling well. Bear with them in love. To bear with one another in love is to respond to a supposed offense by humbly asking, hey, I'm kind of getting this vibe from you. Are, are you all right? You seem a little off. Are you Okay. How else will a bunch of sinners reach this destination of maintaining unity besides humility, gentleness, patience, and love? How else are we going to get there? This is the gospel way. And just for a moment, imagine if this seasoned, if these qualities seasoned all of our relationships. Imagine if humility, gentleness, patience, and love was part and parcel to your marriage, to your home, to your friendships, to your relationships at work. But these qualities, friends, should especially season the church. If we walked this way, this gospel way, my goodness, conflict would arise so much slower in the church than it does. And we would handle conflict so much more differently than we do. Just example, could you imagine if we talked about a contentious topic like politics with humility, 
gentleness, patience, and love. We're not trained to do that. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind by the word. Now, we said the destination is to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's verse 3. Look at that phrase there. We're just going to pick it apart very briefly. It's worth noticing the parts there. God is the one who created this unity. We work to maintain it. Maintenance, like you know with your cars, like you know with your house, it takes effort. It takes attention. Because we will not drift toward unity. We have to work at it. This unity, notice, also is unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills all of us, enables us to walk toward this destination and maintain unity. We can no more maintain unity without the Holy Spirit than Lazarus could have gotten up out of the grave without Jesus' voice calling him out. This is unity of the Spirit, notice, in the bond of peace. This is the reconciled peace Christ has won for us on the cross. Peace with God peace with each other. Now, I know we've been under this heading for the while. We've been on the destination. What is the way to unity? The destination is maintaining the unity of the gospel. I want us to reflect just a little bit more before we go on to the next part of the passage. Look back at verse 3 again. It calls us to approach maintaining unity with a certain attitude. You notice that? Eager eager to maintain unity and the bond of peace. What are you eager to do? What are you eager to do when it comes to church? First thing that comes to your mind. Some of us are most eager to get out of the door by 12 o'clock so you can get to lunch. Some, unfortunately, come to church and are not eager to unite. Unfortunately, eager to divide. Others make it impossible for themselves to walk toward unity because they are not a meaningful member of a church. They treat their relationship with Jesus as just a me and him kind of deal. They go from one church to another. Make it impossible to live out this kind of qualities, deeply at least. And maybe many of us here are somewhere in between. We are not eager to maintain unity. We're not against it. We're kind of eh on maintaining unity. Friends, how are you doing? with walking this gospel way. How are you doing? I know each one of us has our own situations, our own limitations, our own gifts. I want to qualify it and nuance it in that way. But here's a question that we should ask ourselves. What would the church's health be if everybody treated the church the same way that I treat it? What would the church's health be? So that we don't leave ourselves in despair after answering that question. If we are not aboard the train of being eager about maintaining unity, but we are more on the train of being eh about it, what should you do? Let me make four quick suggestions. I know this point is longer. Four quick suggestions if you are kind of eh on maintaining unity. First, you might need to correct your view of the church. You might need to correct your view of the church. Could it be that you struggle to maintain unity in the church through humility, gentleness, patience, and love? You struggle with this because you think church is all about what you get out of it? It's all about what you want? Could it be that you struggle to maintain unity because you are in love with a perfect idea of a church and not with the actual Christians God has placed in front of you? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this in his book, Life Together. The person who loves their dream of community 
will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. We're just trying to apply this, being eager to maintain the unity of the gospel. What if we are not eager? Well, you could rethink your view of the church. A second suggestion, for those who are kind of in, let the covenant be your guide. Let the covenant be your guide. That is the church covenant. You know, church membership isn't exactly like marriage, but it should have a similarly committed love as marriage does. Your marriage vows, the marriage covenant, means that you do not walk away as soon as it gets hard. You do not walk away as soon as you don't feel it anymore. Church, let's be honest. It's just easier to leave than it is to deal with what we don't like. It's just easier. Just easier to leave than it is to deal with conflict in a humble, gentle, patient, loving way. Now, I'm going to say there's never a point in time when you should consider leaving a church. But, boy, let the promises we've made in the church covenant, which actually includes the verses we have in front of us today. Let these promises remind us that we don't jump ship as soon as it gets hard. Third suggestion for those who are kind of eh on maintaining unity. I would suggest you pray for your fellow church members. Dietrich Bonhoeffer again. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. Fourth suggestion for those who are kind of on the fence of maintaining unity. Begin with the gospel again. Begin with the gospel again. Go back. Meditate on the humility, patience, gentleness, and love of Christ. Another subtle plug. You know, this is exactly what we are trying to do in our men's and women's group. We want to meditate on the heart of Christ. Will you join us? Consider this invitation for the introduction of the book we're going to read. It says, you might know that Christ died and rose again on, on your behalf to rinse you clean of all your sin. But do you know his deepest heart for you? Do you live with an awareness not only of his atoning work for your sinfulness, but also an awareness of his longing heart amid your sinfulness? Begin with the gospel again. Be inspired and moved by Christ's humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Now, just in case that you were not convinced that unity is essential, Paul moves to verses 4 and 6. Finally, get to the second heading, the basis of unity. We can summarize Paul's basis for unity with three different numbers. One, seven, and three. One, it doesn't take very deep inductive Bible study to observe that this number one comes up over and over again in verses four to six. There are not multiple bodies there are not multiple spirits, hopes, lords, faiths, baptisms, gods. There are only one of these things. There is not one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. There is just one. Now, I know what you might have been thinking throughout this sermon about unity. If this number one is so prominent, then why are there so many splits and divisions in the church? My goodness, have you driven down State Road 
or Broadview or Pleasant Valley and how many churches there are, how many denominations there are, how many different Orthodox churches there are. I mean, certainly there are more splits, divisions, and denominations that are necessary, but we should be clear that just because a church is a different denomination does not mean that they are on a different team. Christ's church, Big C Church, extends around the world, across history, and yes, even across denominations. Denominations serve a purpose. They accommodate a fallen world where Christians do not fully agree on the details of what the Bible means and how to apply it. Now, so for example, we could try to be in the same denomination and the same church as those who believe in infant baptism, for instance, at least from a Protestant perspective. But eventually somebody's conscience would be violated and we would risk becoming vague on a crucial teaching of scripture. Denominations encourage depth in teaching, but they do not have to prevent us from cooperating with other churches, granted that we, are, that we stand together on the fundamentals and the essentials. Friends, this is why we commit to pray for other local churches every Sunday, even those with whom we disagree with over secondary and tertiary matters. One. That's the first number. Paul applies this number one seven times. We go through each one very briefly. So body, verses four, body is one of Paul's favorite images for the church. His point in much of chapter three was that the Jewish and Gentiles believers now belong to the same body of Christ. He used this image of body extensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says how each member of the church is like a different body part. We should no more want the church to split up any more than we should want our physical bodies to split up and to lose a limb or to lose a ligament. Another seven, one of these, there is one spirit who fills this one body. The Holy Spirit worked in each Christian to bring us into the body of Christ. For some, he opened up our eyes at a very young age. For others, we lived in years of sin. But regardless, the Holy Spirit brought each Christian, each member of the body of Christ to faith in Christ. Regardless of the differences in our life experiences, each Christian shares this fundamental experience. The Holy Spirit brought us to life. There is one hope that belongs to our calling. The next one of these seven, one hope. This is the hope of glory, as Colossians 3.14 says. The hope of being holy and blameless, as Ephesians 1 verse 4 says. This is the same hope for everybody in the church. Though this hope lies in the future, it is certain, remember from Ephesians chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a seal, a guarantee of this hope. Moving on in verses 4 to 6, these seven bases of unity. There is one Lord, Jesus. Jesus is the object of our one faith. Jesus is the one we proclaim we belong to in our baptism. This is the same for every Christian, regardless of background, ethnicity, or heritage. Romans 3, verses 29 to 30 is another place that explains this well. Paul writes, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Last of the seven, there is one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. 
course this makes sense. Of course we belong to the same family if we all have the same father. He reigns over all of his people. He works through all of his people. And he dwells in his, all of his people by his spirit. So you have the number one, the number seven, now the number three. You notice in this section, like so many others at Ephesians, that each member of the Trinity is here. That is, uh, so Jim Boyce, a commentator, he argues that Paul, in the uh, persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, he goes from the effect to the cause. He works backwards. So the Spirit has given the church visible unity. That's the effect. The church got to be the church only because of the work of Christ. Christ did his work at the commissioning of the Father, the one who is over all, through all, and in all. From effect to cause, the three persons of the Trinity united together for our salvation. This means that the unity of the church, the ultimate basis of it, is the unity of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is what Jesus prayed in John 17. You remember before that he prayed that we would be one as he is one with the Father. Christian unity, says John Stott, arises from our having one Father, one Savior, and one indwelling Spirit. So we cannot possibly foster a unity which pleases God, either if we deny the doctrine of the Trinity or if we have not come personally to know God the Father through the reconciling work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of His Holy Spirit. Here is the basis of unity. And we'll wrap things up here. Always a good question to ask with any portion of Scripture. Why is this here? Why is this passage, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, why did Paul feel the need to write this? Why did the Ephesians need to hear it? Well, I think on the one hand, Paul knew how fragile unity is in the church. After all, he says, we have to maintain it. It doesn't just happen. Perhaps he wrote this because he knew tensions in the church began to arise. But on the other hand, Paul wrote this also because he knew how precious unity in the church is. In chapter 3, he said that the Gentiles belonging to the same body and partaking of the same promises of Christ Jesus through the gospel, this displays God's glorious wisdom and grace. That Jews and Gentiles could be united in the same church. That shows off God's glory. So for Paul, this is so important to him. Unity in the church because God's glory is at stake. When the church is united, God is glorified. Paul felt that urgency. He urged them because the unity of the church displays the glory of God. Jesus said the world will know him. We follow him by our love for one another. Just the last thought. I want to think about us here in this room. And I want to encourage you. I love that so many of you and so, much, so many of us love to be here and love to be around each other. That is a sweet thing. I love to see your smiles, even though I can kind of only see them with your eyes. I love to feel the warmth of your kindness. Every time I'm here, I feel heard. I feel cared for. I see the qualities of humility, gentleness, patience, and love. These qualities abound here. 
should be grateful to God for that. I want us to enjoy it and lean in. But I also want us to keep at it. We have to maintain it. We cannot take it for granted. Unity is like that Jenga game. There is a lot that threatens to make it crumble. How fitting is the main idea of this passage for a newly merged church? God brought us together. How amazing. By his grace, let's strive to stay together. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you for doing what we cannot do. We thank you that you brought us back to yourself. We thank you, Lord, that you sought us in your humility, your gentleness, your patience, and your love. And by your spirit, we want to reflect these great gospel qualities and unite us as a church. Sustain us and grow us. We pray for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Amen.